Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. The news cycle never stops, and things are very, very exciting right now in the sense that a lot of things are happening. So I'm going to dive right in here, but it is, uh, it's just a lot. So let's start with some of the big news. Uh, humanitarian aid is flowing back into Gaza once again. Uh, Israel does close the checkpoints when there's violence because we don't know what's going to come through those, uh, those checkpoints. And obviously Israel searches for weapons, which the uh, Palestinians continue to try to smuggle into the Gaza Strip. Uh, but uh, humanitarian aid in terms of food, medical supplies, and other such is flowing back into Gaza. Uh, Israel provides a significant amount of that, but you won't hear that in the in the media now, will you? In any case, uh, that's uh, that is happening. There was a stabbing incident near a Jerusalem police station. A soldier and a civilian were injured. Uh, more attacks on Israeli civilians. It never stops. Bibi Netanyahu has implied that Israel may act unilaterally against Iran as he awaits a trip by United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Uh, the, uh, this, is, this is very important to Bibi Netanyahu, who has always been number one on security uh, politically. Uh, the recent uh, conflict conflagration has raised his stars a little bit, and now he's kind of standing up to the U.S. administration a little bit, pointing out that Israel will take action if it feels its security is threatened by Iran, whether the United States approves or not. Now, that tone that he takes with the Israeli media and the Israeli public versus the tone he'll take behind closed doors in terms of his private conversations with uh, Secretary Blinken, we don't know. But uh, at the very least, there's some posturing going on that uh, Israel is willing to act independently, if necessary, to maintain its own security. Speaking of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, he says it is unclear whether Iran is uh, intending to rejoin the nuclear deal. So uh, the administration may be backing off of its policy there a little bit. Uh, it's not clear what's going on at this point. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, several EU officials said that significant progress had been made. Uh, but now Secretary of State's kind of walking it back a little bit. So we'll see what happens. Now, in my opinion, I'm, I'm questioning whether the administration may just be waking up to the reality. Uh, Iran is not our friend. Iran is not a rational player that we can sit down and negotiate a, a reasonable deal with. Iran is a, an, it's an, a terrorist regime run by religious fanatics who seek the destruction of their enemies and want to take over and dominate the Middle East. And obviously, if we let them do that, if we let them uh, harm Israel and take over the Arab countries and ultimately destroy Israel, we will have a new Germany in the 1930s in the Middle East. And it'll be, you know, another world war to get rid of them, this time with nuclear weapons. So uh, that cannot be permitted to happen. Uh, Secretary Blinken also seeks to prevent U.S. aid from reaching Hamas. And this is one of those challenges that, as I've talked about, when U.S. aid goes to uh, the Palestinian Authority, it invariably ends up in the hands of terrorists. Well, first of all, the official Palestinian Authority in Ramallah is run by an organization called Fatah. Some refer to it as a party, but uh, Fatah is not a party. 
Fatah is a terrorist organization. It is the terrorist organization that was run by Yasser Arafat. It is uh, currently run by Abu Mazen, which is the sort of terrorist name for uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the Palestinian Authority. As I've mentioned before, he was elected to a four-year term back in 2005, and he's still president. No new elections, but he's still in charge. So, uh, you know, great, uh, <laughs> great democracy right there. Uh, so, Blinken wants to keep it from reaching Hamas. That's that's great news. But I mean, when you're giving money to these people, they're not going to use it to build schools and roads and factories and, and encourage economic development and other such. They are going to build rocket factories. They're going to pay uh, the vic the uh, the people who the families of those who victimize Israel, uh, the those who commit terror. Their families are going to continue to receive pensions, and of course, they're going to pay for their security apparatus. People who are, you know, officially police officers or part of the paramilitary Palestinian Authority uh, official uh, police organizations for, for controlling their country are, you know, by day, supposedly uniformed police officers. And by night, they are Fatah terrorists who are, you know, just as bad as the rest. I mean, so and as I've mentioned uh, before, if you've re listened to, to previous episodes, uh, Fatah and uh the security state in the Palestinian ruled territories uh, is uh, extremely oppressive. I mean, they have one in five people paid to watch or monitor the other four, which is a higher ratio, as I've noted, than East Germany. In East Germany, one in six people were, were paid to watch the other five. Well, uh, in the Palestinian territories, the between paramilitary and uh, police forces, they have one in five who are charged with watching the other four. So, nice people dealing with there. In U.S. news, there's been a wave of anti-Semitic beatings and attacks since the uh, the rocket fire began in Israel. This is this is just a terrible thing. So many Jews have been beaten just walking down the street in New York or in other cities, and it is not permissible. Uh, the uh, anti-Semitism, attacks on Jews, hate crimes against Jews. This is the number one hate crime in America. Everybody, you know, screams racism, racism. We're, we're a country of racists and, and all this kind of thing. But when it comes to actual violence, the greatest amount of violence perpetrated against any ethnic group in America, the number one hate crime is committed against Jews. Anti-Semitic attacks is the number one hate crime. If you looked at the statistics and not the rhetoric that comes out of the media and what have you, you would understand that Jews are the most oppressed group of people, the most maltreated group of people, from college campuses to the streets of inner cities now. We are the most oppressed group of people in the United States, uh, the most mistreated. Uh, I guess they were oppressed, the people would talk about socioeconomic things. And the fact is, you know, everybody, you know, conspiracy theory, all Jews are rich, right? We're all bankers and accountants and and uh, fund managers, right? We're all rich and we're all powerful and, and this kind of thing. But the reality is a large number of Jews are lawnsmen, as we say in, in uh, Yiddish, just normal, average, everyday people. I come from a working class family. You know, not all Jews are rich, okay? And we want to be able to walk down the street safely 
with our kipot on, uh, our little hats on our heads, uh, wearing our uh, Magin David, our Star of David, on our necklaces or what have you. I, my children wear uh, T-shirts that are, you know, Jerusalem, Israel, and, and IDF T-shirts. I want us to be able to walk down the street safely in this country, and that is uh, becoming increasingly problematic. Okay, who commits these attacks? Well, first of all, they're mostly committed in deep blue cities. So in the, in the paragons of tolerance and peace and love and, and the, the hardened uh, fortresses of the left, where we're, we're supposed to have you know, peace, love, and tolerance, um, that's where our, most of these attacks are happening. They're not happening in rural Texas. They're not happening in rural Kansas. I live in rural Kansas, and I will tell you that here everybody loves Jews. You know, haven't had any problems, but uh, they are happening in New York. They are happening in Chicago. They are happening in deep blue cities. Who's committing these attacks? Uh, a number of the most egregious attacks over the, the past weeks have been committed by Muslims living in the U.S., but the second largest group who commits these attacks are African-Americans. For some reason, and this is, this is a, a terrible truth that nobody seems to want to talk about, but that needs to be addressed, uh, African-Americans have become increasingly violent toward Jews over the past few years. And this has been ramping up for about a decade. We don't, I mean, it's not f completely understood. I don't understand that there's any, I mean, there's no rational reason for uh, blacks to attack Jews. I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it, but it is happening. Uh, and it's not anything against that particular racial group of people. It's just that it, these attacks are being perpetrated in large part by that particular group. So we need to find a way in this country to uh, engender a true, peaceful, secure attitude and uh, end the violence. Uh, speaking of which, President Biden has called for an end to the, quote, despicable anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, and uh, of course, it would be nice if we had a little bit more uh, force behind that. Uh, the former president, President Trump, uh, has had uh, executive orders defending Jews on campus. Uh, he took strong action to protect Israel, and uh, his rhetoric was always solidly in favor of the Jewish people. No one has done more to fight this anti-Semitic uh, nonsense, these despicable kinds of attitudes and attacks, than Donald Trump ha has done. And uh, President Biden has big shoes to fill there. So just calling these attacks despicable is not enough, Mr. President. You need to get out there and be active, proactive on campuses, repealing the executive orders that redefined anti-Semitism on campus that were designed to protect Jews on campus uh, does not help our cause. So you're, you're promoting more despicable attacks while you're calling the attacks despicable and, and saying they should stop. Uh, actions speak louder than words. I'm waiting for the action. I, I want somebody to sell me, okay? Uh, in Jerusalem, meanwhile, a couple of Jews who attacked an Arab man during the riot are going to be charged and prosecuted. This is something I, I talked about a couple episodes back. Uh, there were some uh, extremist uh, Israelis marching in Jerusalem shouting death to the Arabs. Uh, we wholeheartedly condemn and do not tolerate those kinds of attitudes and certainly those kinds of actions among our people. We have extremists. The Jewish people are as diverse a people as any. Uh, so we have our fruitcakes and our nut jobs as well, and we condemn them. We do not uh, placate them or support them. And uh, in this case, these men committed a crime, they attacked a, a person, injured a person, and they're going to be punished. 
the Israeli court system is going to put them in jail, and they are going to go to jail as if they had attacked any other Israeli uh, and committed any other heinous crime. Okay, justice comes first. When people commit crimes, acts of violence uh, that are outside of the realm of self-defense, obviously if you're attacked, that's a different thing. But when you assault someone, when you threaten them, when you batter them, when you attack them, uh, when you aggravate that by uh, you know, beating them half to death, those are crimes. And you will go to prison for it if you're an Israeli who commits these acts against other Israelis or residents within Israel. And uh, again, we put justice first. All right, coming back from the ad break, and uh, before I get back into the news, I just wanted to reiterate again, as I had in a previous episode, if you wish to uh, offer your help to Israel and support Israel, that is very, very much appreciated. Uh, if you are able to, even small amounts go a long way. If, if everyone gave $10, $15, $25, that would add up over time. Uh, if you would like to, uh, the two organizations that I highly recommend are Magen David Adom, which is the Israeli uh, branch of the Red Cross. Uh, you can find them at afmda.org, afmda.org. And uh, that organization, uh, like many Red Cross organizations, provides medical care, treatment, and uh, assistance within Israel uh, emergency services. The other organization I highly recommend is Friends of the Israeli Defense Forces, fidf.org, fidf.org. Um, FIDF is an organization I've fundraised for for some time, actually. Uh, they provide support services for soldiers, religious, uh, and uh, other services. They help soldiers who don't have family to go to or, or to support them. And uh, they provide uh, educational resources for orphans and uh, financial resources for widows of soldiers and, and so on. Just an all-around good organization. Uh, again, Israel doesn't have the financial resources to provide a lot of uh, help to um, soldiers and, and other such uh, within the, you know, from the government itself. Uh, you know, it's a relatively small country and they do the best they can. Uh, but FIDF, uh, Friends of the Israeli Defense Forces, certainly does what it can to help out. All donations are very, very much appreciated. Uh, those who bless the nation are themselves to be blessed. So uh, we appreciate that help. Uh, and obviously, continued political uh, support. Uh, before I go into the political section here, I'm going to talk about politics in Israel. Uh, I just want to note, uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of blaze through this a little bit because I want to get on to the next section talking about defending Israel. Uh, it is helpful if you go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes. I, uh, I the, the episodes, especially 1 through 15 and all of the supplements, they cover the political history uh, the candidates, the parties, discuss the political personalities, some of the history of these uh, elections and events. And uh, I also have several supplements that cover, um, you know, the structure of the Israeli government, how politics works, how elections work, and uh, the court system and things of that nature. So that get you caught up because uh, I'm just going to run through a lot of names and a lot of things. Now, those who have been listening uh, consistently, you're going to know what's going on because these are just the latest updates from past episodes. Uh, but I, I don't I just want to know I don't intend to confuse anyone. I just have to save a little time. Uh, so uh, the general political mood on the Israeli street uh, from what some many of my friends have told uh, me personally, and this is, you know, love them and hate them. You have, you have people who love Bibi and the people who hate Bibi. Um, after the Gaza conflict, they feel that Bibi's star is rising. 
And uh, while the deadlock persists, he's still struggling to form a government. Uh, his neither uh, side, the pro-BB or anti-BB group, have been able to find 61 seats, a majority of the 120 seats of the Knesset. Uh, but there's this feeling that BB is stronger. Uh, BB has always been really strong on the economy. He's very well known for for prosperity. Uh, he's well known for a number of other policies uh, relative to Israel developing the uh, oil and gas industry. Israel has a large offshore uh, oil uh, reserves that it can tap into, and they're starting to develop that and develop their own natural gas and uh, their ability to become an oil exporter. Uh, it's kind of a, a funny thing we used to joke that of all the places in the Middle East that Jews could live, uh, we lived in the one place that has no oil, right? But it's all offshore, apparently. So uh, now we're able to tap into that. Um, but Bibi's big issue, the thing that has made Bibi Netanyahu stand out above all other politicians, both personally and as part of the Likud party and its movement, is security. Bibi has always been Mr. Security. Security has been his big issue. And we're familiar with this here in the U.S. Uh, the Republican Party tends to have better numbers on security when you talk about, you know, um, who do you think provides better national security? Generally, the Republicans get a better uh, props on that, uh, more favorables than uh, the Democrats do. When you ask about education, it tends to go the, to the Democrats, things like that. So in this case, Bibi Netanyahu, very much the same thing. If you poll people on who provides you know, excellent security in Israel, Bibi's numbers are going to be very high relative to other politicians personally, and Likud's numbers are going to be higher than a lot of other numbers uh, as a political party. Um, so Bibi is, is stronger after the, the conflict. He's getting a lot of, uh, a lot of criticism from the right for not being tough enough on Hamas. And the left is kind of getting to have it both ways. On the one hand, they're, they're kind of quietly echoing a little bit. The whole, uh, Bibi could have been tougher criticizing the way that the military operation was handled. But at the same time, they're also, um, you know, from the left, oh, we should we should do more to foster peace and, and that kind of thing. So kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth. I mean, it's politics. You know, the whole forked tongue thing is is common. Um, I'll remember a famous headline from a, in Britain where one of the third parties was running to the left and the right of the government. And uh, that was just that was a great moment in in political history. It's like you could run from you can run against uh, your opponent from both ends. Right. Hit them both sides. Anyway, um, so. As I mentioned before, when uh, Naftali Bennett, who leads the Yamina party, has seven seats in the Knesset, when he was negotiating with Bibi Netanyahu, back when Bibi had the mandate to form a government, the uh, the issue was that Naftali Bennett wanted a rotation in office. He wanted to be prime minister first. And Bibi Netanyahu does not want to give the prime minister's office to anyone else. Uh, so there's that's uh, issue number one. Issue number two is that Bibi Netanyahu has been charged with a number of crimes. Uh, again, as I've, I've talked about before, uh, it is there's some suggestion that there may have been some wrongdoing, uh, maybe pushing things a little too far, whether it rises to the level of a crime, whether there is a, a criminally provable, uh, from an evidentiary point of view, a provable quid pro quo, that there was actually a, a direct conversation. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you that would have been illegal um, is not entirely clear. Uh, it may be that that conversation never took place, but maybe, you know, they did do things for one another. He did favors for his political friends. It seems fairly clear that is the case. Uh, and those friends did political favors for him. The question is, did they actually discuss it? Was there actually a crime? 
And Bibi wants uh, immunity from prosecution for those uh, charges, right? And he wants to remain prime minister primarily because it shields him from uh, the charges. And some say that's a sign of his guilt. Uh, others just, uh, it could be pointed out that, I mean, if he, if he leaves office as prime minister, then, you know, the police are going to come arrest him, drag him out of his house. And, you know, it's going to be a very embarrassing and, and negative experience. So maybe he just wants to avoid that. Anyway, there are a couple of different ways of looking at that. Uh, but those were two of the big issues in dealing with Naftali Bennett. Uh, and now that the conflict has happened, uh, Likud has offered a much, um, uh, let's just say, a, a much stiffer deal to Naftali Bennett. Uh, they have offered Bennett the defense ministry and uh, the position as acting PM, acting prime minister. Uh, the acting prime minister is kind of the number two. Uh, a few years back uh, when Ariel Sharon had his uh, second stroke and was no longer able to act as prime minister, there was a bit of a constitutional crisis because uh, the deputy prime minister, who technically takes over in that situation, was just uh, an office like the vice presidency of the United States that goes to somebody who's largely politically irrelevant. And there was no succession plan for the office to go to somebody who would really be the person who would be next in line to be prime minister. And so they created the office of acting PM so that someone in the cabinet is de designated that when the prime minister goes on a trip, uh, out of the country, when the prime minister is incapacitated, like under surgery or what have you, that person takes over as prime minister. Well, that's you know basically the closest you can get to being prime minister without being prime minister for Naftali Bennett, but it is still a downgrade from the possibility of his being prime minister, right? So it, it distinctly shows that Likud and uh, Bibi Netanyahu feel that they are in a stronger place politically now vis-a-vis -vis Bennett and the change blog. Bennett has criticized the government's uh, actions during the conflict, generally from the right, that they didn't do enough, they could have done better. And um, he says he is still open to discussing with the change block. But at this point, one of his party members has refused to vote for the chain, for, for Yair Lapid or any kind of coalition led by Yair Lapid, whether uh, Naftali Bennett is prime minister or not. And uh, that creates problems internally for uh, Yamina. So it's not clear whether he'll even have the votes to do that if he wants to. All right. The leader of the religious Zionists, the uh, far right party that represents a conglomeration of extreme right political parties, Betzalel Smotrich. I've mentioned him before. And uh, so, you know, you'd have to kind of go back and, and learn more about them. But uh, they're, they're not right in the sense that we think of like libertarian economic freedom and all this kind of thing. They're right in that the government should forcefully crack down on whatever they don't like and, and forcibly remove people and things of that nature. So they're, uh, they're not, uh, they're not the, your, your grandma's right wing party. In any case, uh, Smotrich has said that if Bennett will join the coalition with Bibi, he believes that uh, he can pry away members of the New Hope Party to join the government. Now, the New Hope Party is Gidon Sa'ar's party. Gidon Sa'ar broke off from Likud. He was a Likudnik. He, he lost the most recent leadership challenge against Bibi. So he was trying to become Likud's leader. He recently left Likud for this election and ran independently as a, in the hopes that he could be prime minister instead of Bibi. He ended up getting six seats out of 120. So, you know, 5% of the seats. Uh, and uh, he, he was kind of a flop. Well, several members of his party, now that the conflict has happened, are under a, a lot of pressure to join the government. But Gidon Sa'ar himself promised not to serve in any government with Bibi. So he can't. But maybe a couple members of his party who are under a lot of intense pressure 
uh, might join. And if Naftali Bennett will join the right-wing government, so Bibi Netanyahu and his close allies have 52 seats out of 120. They need 61. So they need nine seats, right? Uh, Yamina has seven. And if Naftali Bennett will negotiate with Bibi, they can get all seven of them to vote for Bibi. So that puts them at 59, just two seats shy. Well, uh, New Hope has six seats. And if just two of those members will break away from New Hope and vote with Likud, vote with Bibi, then they have a majority. It's a narrow majority, but it would be enough to get a government uh, in office under Bibi Netanyahu and end the political crisis. If that doesn't happen, and if Yair Lapid is not able to form a government that can uh, compete with Bibi, he has until June, 6, uh, June, 7, June 2nd, excuse me, he has until June 2nd to form a government, and then his mandate ends, after which there's a 21-day period where anyone can form a government, and if no government is formed then, uh, then new elections will be called. So by the end of June, we'll know whether there's going to be a fifth election one way or another. And... Um, Obviously, the, the four elections that have happened over the past two years are unprecedented, so obviously a fifth would be equally unprecedented. So that's kind of where things lie politically. It looks better for Bibi than it did before. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the right among... And when I say pressure on the right, not just like right-wing politicians, uh, right-wing voters, people who voted for Yamina, for Naftali Bennett, only a quarter of them were willing to support his joining a government with Lapid, even if he was going to be prime minister. So that tells you something. These voters do not appreciate the effort to get rid of Bibi Netanyahu uh, in large part. And they, they want a right-wing government, even if it's led by Bibi. So there's a lot of political pressure. People who want to protect their political future and their good name and their opportunity to win re-election. Uh, and, and that's the key to democracy and accountability. Is that You want to be able to continue in office. You have to do what the people demand, what your voters and your constituents demand of you. And uh, they, they're demanding even more strongly than ever before uh, in the past months that they join a strong right-wing government. So with that, um, that's the political news in Israel. So during this conflict, I encountered a number of let's just say, troubling arguments against Israel, some of them the usual suspects, some of them more uh, problematic than others. So I'm going to go over them. If you are like me and you're somebody who gets into scraps with people in social media and, uh, you know, you get your friends emailing you stuff, oh, no, look at this, and you want to be able to respond, I want to uh, arm you so that you are better able to uh, defeat these dumb attacks because all of them are, are absolutely inane. I mean, it, it requires no intelligence whatsoever to spout them. If you apply any kind of intelligence, it breaks them apart. But that's just my opinion. Um, so there, there are a number of problematic ones. The first one comments on my Facebook page, uh, among other things, at uh, Inside Israel News on Facebook, and uh, comments on some of the articles about Israel there, and... Uh, a good friend of mine himself uh, started receiving emails from acquaintances about this. Uh, this one is the, the most troubling of all of the arguments, in my opinion, and that is the protocols of the elders of Zion. If I sound a little bit... <laughs> I don't know. It's so ridiculous that this comes around all the time. Uh, when I was in college, there was a, a young lady I knew, and, and she asked me one time, because she knew I was Jewish, and said, my boyfriend wanted me to read this... Uh, uh, protocols of elders of Zion, what should I do? And I said, find a new boyfriend, <laughs> because those kinds of fruitcakes you don't need. All right, so the protocols of the elders of Zion are literally Nazi propaganda. 
Uh, I have a great article I have shared on the Facebook page that you should look up. It's from the Holocaust Encyclopedia, and uh, it explains all the history of this stupid work. Um, it's based on a, uh, a French political uh, satire that had nothing to do with Jews, and Russians plagiarized it to turn it into uh, anti-Semitic propaganda in uh, the Russian Empire. And then the Nazis grabbed hold of it and found that it was a perfect uh, justification for the Holocaust. Okay, so if you are sharing the protocols of the elders of Zion, if somebody is sharing that with you, if people are, are spreading this around, this is literally neo-Nazi propaganda. You are literally, this is literally the work of the people who slaughtered six million Jews in uh, concentration camps. So, you know, break out the Zyklon B, break out the... Uh, you know, head head for the shower rooms, the the gas chambers, and the ovens, because this is what uh, helped to cause that one of the the greatest tragedies in human history, uh, right up there with the great famines of uh, China and uh, the mass uh, the mass deaths in in the Soviet Union. This is a terrible, terrible thing that happened, and the fact that it happened to Jews in particular is what makes it especially egregious. Uh, this this one particular religio ethnic group. Uh, that was nearly, you know, our population in Europe was cut more than cut in half uh, by the Holocaust. So that's the tragedy waiting to happen when people share that kind of nonsense. So if you hear from someone at the word protocols or they send you an email, oh, check out the protocols, uh, this, you know, you, you see this kind of thing, you know, reply just, hey, you know, take that swastika armband off your arm, put your arm down, stop shouting Heil every time someone says Zieg. Take off the jack boots and leave your Sturmabteilung, your stormtrooper battalion. Okay, you you know this is this is Adolf Hitler, Hermann Goering, and uh, you know this is this is Heinrich Himmler. Okay, this is evil, evil stuff. The people who perpetuate this theory, and and if you hear people talk, oh the Rothschilds, same thing. The the Rothschilds conspiracy grows out of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Okay, if you are advocating for this, you are advocating for the mass murder of Jews. One more time, if you are advocating for the protocols, you are advocating for the mass murder of Jews. There is no greater evil than that. So, you know, that, that's, that's that. All of these uh, anti-Semitic attacks on Israel also come out of this general sense in this uh, protocols kind of plays on that uh, Jews are these uh, uh, sniveling, conniving trolls with long noses and horns on our heads and, and we're, we're devious and we drink the blood of Christian babies and uh, this, this kind of nonsense that, that Jews are always conniving and, and conspiring and all of this kind of thing. Uh, guess what? Jews are people. Uh, you know, tickle us, do we not laugh? Prick us, shall we not bleed? And wrong us, shall we not revenge? We're people, okay? I'm just a guy. <laughs> I, I put my pants on one leg at a time like everybody else, okay? The the fact is, there is people point, oh, there's this vast conspiracy with the banking and the Rothschilds. And, you know, how many Christian bankers are there? How many secular bankers? How many bankers from other countries, you know? Oh, but it's the Jews. Oh, good Lord. Uh, it happens that Jewish people have a tendency to be smarter, on average, and uh, than the general population. And, and we value education, and we promote education uh, among our children, and, and what have you. So, yes, there do tend to be a lot of Jews who are very successful in business and and find their way into high government office and that kind of thing. We should celebrate that fact. If if you think that's, uh, if you're aware of that fact, then learn from the Jews and do what the Jewish people do: 
teach your children from a very young age to learn, to enjoy learning, and uh, you know, value their education. Right? We just had uh, the religious holiday of Shavuot, had a gathering in my house with family, friends, and uh, community, and we uh, had a, a long discussion of uh, Hebrew and uh, reading uh, the book of Ruth and, and just a lot of uh, fun talk and uh, thought and you know, my children were there along with the, the children of several other families, and they're part of an environment where they're learning and growing, and they see the value we place, the high value we place on education, uh, being erudite and uh, knowing what you're talking about. Okay, so the the other argument, the, the next argument we get is the, you know, oh, rockets are falling on Israel. What do you expect when you steal people's lands? Really? I always, I, this one I find especially, again, you know, Jews are devious, sniveling trolls who drink the blood of Christian babies. So, of course, we, you know, we stole the land and we're, we're conniving and conspiring against the people who live there. So, um, with this one, I always just ask the, the, you know, who stole it? When? How was this land stolen? Because most of these people really don't have the intelligence to know anything about what was going on. And there's, oh, well, the Jews took it. Like, no, when the Ottoman Empire controlled the Levant, which is the region uh, in which Israel lies, uh, historical uh, name for it, when, when the Ottoman Empire controlled the Levant, Jews began moving back there. They bought land. They own titles that say, you know, official seal of the Ottoman Empire. And they lived on that land just like all of the other residents and citizens of the Ottoman Empire. When the British took over, uh, there was the Balfour Declaration that said there was going to be a Jewish state. The United States and Britain signed a treaty guaranteeing that there would be a Jewish state because the United States was concerned that the Brits might renege on their promise, as they kind of did. Uh, and so Jews bought land. The titles on them say British Mandate of Palestine, British Government. They were the people who were in charge there. The League of Nations gave them a mandate to, to govern that land. And so Jews legally bought land there and lived. There's, there's nothing illegal about any of that. Where, where, who stole what? Right? The Arabs, who, who, some of whom owned that land, who sold it to Jews, they, gave, they got money for it and they lived well. And as I've talked about before, you know, demographically, uh, while uh, large, you know, hundreds of thousands of Jews moved to uh, the British Mandate of Palestine during the 20s and 30s, uh, so did hundreds of thousands of Arabs. There were jobs. There was economic activity. There were, there were more opportunities in the British Mandate of Palestine than there were in Egypt or Lebanon or Syria or Saudi Arabia or Iraq. So these people moved there. People like, you know, the Arafats, who were Egyptians, Right. As in Yasser Arafat. OK. And you have people like Mahmoud Abbas. Abbas is a Syrian name. Now, granted, a lot of the native uh, uh, the native Arabs to the region consider themselves Syrian uh, and they're part of the, the greater pan-Syrian Arab culture. Uh, that uh, that name is fairly common there. But still, I mean, that's a family that's from Syria. So then there was a war. All right. The United Nations in 1946 put out a partition plan. They, they said, okay, well, there are Jews living there and there are Arabs living there, so we'll just split the baby down the middle. And the half of the land in the, quote, British Mandate of Palestine will go to the Jews as Israel, and the other half will go to the Arabs as Palestine. Uh, the British had tried to, to keep the area all Arab, uh, the, the, uh, the Clement Attlee government being, you know, especially anti-Semitic. Uh, did their best to try to prevent the, the creation of the state of Israel, but the Israelis um, continued to resist British rule there. That's right, Israelis resisting imperial colonial rule. How can we be imperialists and colonialists if we were fighting the colonizer ourselves? 
right? Literally, you know, the, the Israelis had a, a factory for making guns that was hidden under a laundromat. And they would uh, they were fighting the British just alongside, you know, just as the Arabs were fighting the British, just as the Indians were protesting British rule, as the people of South Africa were seeking independence from Britain. All these independence movements, Israelis were just another one of those. Anyway, the, the UN peace plan was put forward and the Jews agreed. The Haganah, the, the Jewish community that was elected by all of the Jews living in the British mandate, voted and they supported the peace plan. They were willing to accept the partition, complicated though it was and convoluted though it was, as long as it meant a, uh, there would be a state of Israel. Well, the Arabs, led by the Mufti al-Husseini, the Mufti al-Husseini, who was a good friend of Adolf Hitler, helped to recruit an SS, a Waffen-SS division in uh, Bosnia. If you want to learn about uh, some history that Americans never get to study, learn the history of the Hanshar division, which is what that division was called. The Hanshar division was an incredible, uh, it's just incredible history when you learn about all of the, the horrors that that division committed and uh, its acts, but it teaches you so much about Balkan politics. Um, I mean, they murdered Jews, they murdered Serbians, they murdered Croats. Uh, they just, they were, they were, they terrorized the Balkans. Uh, and a lot of the uh, members of that division escaped to the British Mandate of Palestine and along with the Mufti Husseini helped to found the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the, uh, you know, the, this, this, this invented group of people, the Palestinians. Okay, so uh, there was a war, right? Mufti Husseini and, and his group fighting the Jews, right? When Israel declared independence, when the British decided they were leaving, Israel declared independence, there was a war. Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, they declared war on the state of Israel and they all attacked. And a funny thing happened. Israel won. The Egyptians eventually retreated. Uh, the, everyone else was defeated and driven off, except the, the Jordan, Jordan occupied a significant part of Israel, uh, what the international press calls the West Bank, but is properly called the Shomron and Yehuda in the middle of Israel. And uh, East Jerusalem, the, the eastern half of Jerusalem, they occupied, right? That was a war, okay? The, the were all kinds of claims by both sides that there were massacres. The Israelis have solid evidence that entire Israeli communities were, were slaughtered. Uh, by the invading armies. There are all kinds of claims by the Arabs that one or two uh, Arab communities were slaughtered by the Israelis. It, you know, that that's their claim. The Israelis say it didn't happen. If it did, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, overzealous uh, far-right groups did exist in Israel, uh, but not on the scale that they're trying to suggest. Uh, the Arabs who left Israel chose to leave Israel. Now, as I mentioned, demographically, there were uh, something like 200,000 Arabs living in the region when Br the British took over. Most of those people who were native there stayed. They stayed in Israel. They became citizens of Israel and Arab women voted for the first time in Israel. Right. A uh, large number of the people who are expatriates who left, who fled to the Gaza Strip, who fled to the Shomron and Yehuda, uh, choosing to abandon their homes. Those people were mostly immigrants. People had come from other Arab countries, but rather than integrate them back into these other Arab countries, uh, the Arabs kept them as fodder for a war against Israel. Okay, the Arabs lost a war. It's a it's a sad and unfortunate thing when you lose a war, you lose territory. All right, I don't hear any of these people oh you stole the land uh, complaining about how the Soviet Union and Poland stole East Prussia from Germany. Okay, that's also a sad story. All right, now the Germans started a war with Russia and they lost. So, I mean, it, it, I don't have a lot of tears 
for the Germans who lived there, but their lands were taken. People were forced off of their farms, forcibly removed from Poland, uh, that area that used to be part of the, you know, the core German East Prussian sort of military elite uh, is gone. Okay. No one's advocating for giving it back. They lost. They started it. They lost. Just like nobody's advocating for giving Korea back to Japan, you know, or Formosa, uh, now called Taiwan, right? I mean, Japan started a war. They bombed Pearl Harbor. They, they invaded China. Okay. And they started a war and they lost. Okay. The Arabs lost. That's it. Okay, and then they went and started another war in 1967. And just as about the, as they were about to launch their planes to bomb Israel from Egypt, uh, the Israeli Air Force, knowing that they were coming, bombed them first. And uh, Israel uh, was able to defend itself, capturing the Sinai, uh, then capturing uh, the Shomron and Yehuda, liberating the Shomron and Yehuda and, and Jerusalem from control of the Arabs, and of course the Golan Heights, which are now officially part of Israel. They've been officially and formally annexed. And that's very important because they're right on the border with Syria. But uh, these heights, these high mountains overlook, uh, you know, Israel. You can see the Mediterranean from the top of them and you can look down on the whole of Israel. It's it's a beautiful view. But then you think about what somebody could do with artillery cannons up there. And you're like, I'm glad this belongs to Israel. And actually, most of the um, Arabs who live there are Druze. Uh, Druze are part of the Ismaili movement, sort of uh, Socratic um form of, of Islam, sort of a Socratic rationalist movement that's that's a long story for another time. But they're really happy to uh, be a part of Israel. They're better treated than they were in Syria at the time. So, you know, if you talk to the Druze, a lot of them serve in the military. Uh, several have served in the Knesset, and uh, a lot of them vote Likud. They're, they're very passionate about Israel as a safe country for the Druze, and they're, they're very keen about that. So, again, who stole what land? When? How? Right? Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip. All of all of the residents, there were Jewish people who lived there, who were who were settled there, quote unquote, in the international press. We removed them, gave the Gaza Strip back to Hamas, you know, to the Arabs, and the Hamas took it over. And now they fire rockets at us. So, you know, uh, that's anyway. Whew. <laughs> As I said, all of these arguments are inane. Any kind of intelligence, you know, and of course, when you make these arguments, people are just going to blow up at you, you know, <laughs> because there is no intelligent argument back. Uh, so that's why they do it. They just have to get upset because, you know, it has the, the anger and the emotion has to take over because uh, no, you know, no intelligent argument can be mounted uh, for their cause. So. You know, if uh, if Israel stole the land from the Arabs, then Poland and uh, the Soviet Union stole land from Germany and the United States stole and Russia stole Korea from Japan and Taiwan from Japan. And all of those territories should go back. And, uh, you know, there's there's no argument that that East Prussia should belong to Poland or Korea should be independent if Israel stole land from the, the Palestinians. Now, the last one is the dumbest of all of them. Um, the protocols are dumb, but I, I think, you know, they're, they're especially inane. But a lot of people who get drawn into that, uh, they're just, they're ignorant. They don't know what's going on. Maybe a friend told them about it. And so they're, they're kind of cowed into it. I, I have, I've met very few people who, uh, you know, really, um, you know, 
are, are stable, healthy people who get into that. You get a lot of people who are insecure and maybe they don't want to lose their friends. So they hear it, you know, uh, you kind of have to be a little bit mentally ill to, uh, to believe in that kind of stuff. No offense to the mentally ill. Uh, but people need to be educated away from that. Uh, but this one is really dumb. And that is, Israel is committing genocide. You see the, the tweets going around, you know, this is the, the first genocide where the, the, you know, the party committing it is tweeting about it when the IDF tweeted about how they might have a ground operation in, in Gaza. And as I noted, they did not have a ground operation in Gaza. Instead, they blew up the tunnels that were hiding terrorists and uh, caused significant pain to Hamas and Islamic Jihad. All right. Israel is committing genocide. Apartheid state. All this kind of nonsense. Um, I actually had a uh, South African friend, you know, just blow up. Uh, he's, he's a uh, black African, South African. And he was just furious on uh, one thread that I was on because, you know, they, these people have no idea what apartheid was. And they're going out there and using this term like they like they have no clue. And so he was trying to explain to them intelligently what apartheid was like for black Africans when in Africa and how it's nothing like Israel. I, the Israeli Arabs live like other Israelis do, I, as I've mentioned before. I mean, it was a, a Muslim lady who worked at the store that I, the grocery store that I shopped at. I was happy to have her check us out. Uh, there are Israeli political parties that are Arab. Uh, Ra'am, right? The joint list. These are Arab parties, that some of whom do not believe Israel should exist. And that's their opinion. And they have a right to have an opinion, whether we like it or not. They have a right to vote for whom they like. Uh, you go to Um al-Fam, you can drive right in. There are no border checkpoints, no security posts. You go right in. There's beautiful mosques and good food. And uh, actually, the people are relatively friendly. Uh, for the most part, you know, they like tourists just like anybody else. They, they want your money. Uh, but I mean, generally speaking, I found people very friendly and very kind. No, no big deal. Right now, when it comes to the Palestinians, yes, there's a security fence. Yes, there are divisions. No, they're not allowed to leave uh, Gaza Strip and work in Israel. They, we did that. We tried that. And you know what happened? Buses exploded. Right. We, we allowed them free passage if if they had security, you know, had security verifications and ID and all of this. They were allowed to work in Israel and, and there was some free passage. And then we had terrorist bombs on buses and uh, at nightclubs. So Israel stopped doing that. We we're not stupid. OK, if, if you keep falling down the stairs in, and every time you go down, you think, oh, I won't slip this time. But you, every time you slip, I, I'm sorry, you know, doing the, the same thing every time, expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. So obviously Israel learned that you can't allow pe the, the so-called Palestinian Arabs to work outside of their territories. Uh, so then, of course, we Jewish businesses and, and international business tried to bring business to the Arabs so that they could work and, and gain economic opportunity. SodaStream and another, a number of other great companies went and set up uh, factories that could have Arab and uh, Israeli, you know, Jewish and, and Arab and Palestinian Arab workers. And then uh, we started this stupid BDS movement uh, where they, they wanted to ban all trade with uh, companies that worked in, in the Shomron and Yehuda, right? And so they shut down all those companies. So now like, there are no jobs for the Palestinians from those companies, right? So, I mean, it, you know, all they do is try to perpetuate the conflict. Okay, uh, Israel committing genocide. 
uh, the, that statement that I made before is definitely true. If the Palestinians wanted peace, there would be peace. If Israel wanted the Palestinians gone, they'd be gone one way or another, removed or, or what have you. Okay. Uh, Israel has F-35 fighters, F-16 fighters. Uh, they have phosphorus shells and steel rain uh, bombs. If Israel wanted those territories cleared, they'd be cleared. Okay, if we were if we were the the sniveling, conniving trolls with long noses and warts and our, the horns in our heads, drinking the blood of Christian babies, then you know we'd have whacked those people a long time ago. Okay, uh, give you know tell tell me what resources Israel lacks or or will willpower that Israel lacks that the Nazis had right that some supposedly we're we're going to be that evil right that we're going to kill these people. Uh, why haven't we? Okay, it's the dumbest thing ever. If Israel wanted to kill the Palestinians, why would they restrict their fire to terrorist targets, to rocket factories, to things? And people, well, they're bombing hospitals. You know, a hospital that was empty when it was bombed. This was years ago, and it, it the basement was full of weapons. You can see if you watch this video, go look it up on on YouTube of, of the bombing of the Hamas hospital. Uh, the IDF took footage of it. You can watch. The first bomb hits, the building begins to collapse, and you can distinctly see there are secondary explosions, several of them, of the munitions underneath this building blowing up. That cannot happen if there are no munitions there. So, uh, you know, Israel doesn't bomb hospitals. They also provide free medical care to the unintended casualties that result from the bombings. So, uh, you know, that's there. Now, now speaking of genocide... Right? If you're firing rockets at civilian targets, right? the rockets that they're firing are not at Israeli bases, military bases. Right? They're firing them at Tel Aviv and Ashkelon, at uh, Sterod and, and these communities, at Beersheba. Right? They're, they're firing them at homes, schools, hospitals, right? where people live. People are being murdered on the streets next to their houses. Uh, I shared videos from the IDF of uh, you know, houses destroyed. Uh, you can read that, see it, find that on my Facebook page. Houses destroyed by rockets, people killed with uh, shrapnel, uh, metal, you know, steel rebar uh, that are put in these uh, rockets. So this is, um, you know, this is horrible, horrible stuff. So, um, you know, this this is um, again, you know, sometimes I <laughs> I run out of things to say. It's so stupid, right? Uh, you know, the definition of genocide is the attempted uh, annihilation of your enemy, right? Of an ethnic group or, or a group of people. Uh, firing rockets at civilian targets is genocide, right? It's more genocidal. It is a, a stronger attempt at genocide than the deliberate targeting of terrorist targets, of terrorist leaders, terrorist infrastructure, uh, like the ha Hamas ha uh, the, the Hamas hospital and the Gaza metro, the, right? The, the tunnels underneath the city, uh, these, um, these targets are legitimate targets. These are targets uh, of infrastructure and weapons and people who intend to murder Israelis and kill Jews. Okay. At the end of the day, all of these arguments, again, you know, Jews being conniving trolls, it all comes down to Jewish lives don't matter. You know, at the end of the day, it's okay to murder Jews because well, because uh, uh, the the protocols, it's all a conspiracy, Jewish conspiracy, or uh, because they stole the land. So it's okay to kill Jews because they stole the land, or it's okay to kill Jews because they're committing genocide, right? I anytime you say that, okay, it's okay to kill Jews. No, it is not okay to kill Jews. 
It's not okay to kill anybody. Whatever cause you think your cause is so great, it is not a justification for killing people. So you just stop it right there. It is not okay to kill Jews. It's not okay to kill anyone without justification. All right? It is not okay to kill Jews because of anything. Whatever excuse you're coming up with, that is the textbook definition of anti-Semitism. You hold Jewish life to have less value than the lives of other people. And that's where we get this proportionality. Well, you know, hundreds of people are dying. Only 10 Israelis have died. Only, <laughs> you know, 10, it, 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 that no Israelis should die. They should live in peace. It's a democratic country, right? Those are voters. They don't want to be killed. So naturally they want their government to protect them. That's why they elect that government. All right. So it, it gets, it gets inane. All right. So you'll have people, oh, well, I'm only an anti-Zionist. I'm anti-Israel. I'm not a, a Semitic. Yes, you are. If you believe it's okay to murder Jews because blank, whatever the blank is, you know, then it, it's, it's not okay. I use this argument, uh, by the way, also for communism. I hear people, you know, we need communism because racism. We need communism because global warming. We need communism because overpopulation. Uh, you know, they stop right there at the we need communism. It, it doesn't matter what your excuse is. And usually those are, are baloney excuses anyway. But uh, communism is worse than all of those things put together. All right, communism will kill more people is more horrible than all those things. So we don't need communism. We don't want communism. Just stop that. <laughs> no communism. There is no excuse that, 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 there's, that we should have communism that's worse than all of the excuses, worse than all the horrors in the world. All right. Back to the thing. Okay. It, it's, you know, it's okay to kill Jews because there is no justification for killing Jews. We are the most attacked and persecuted people in the United States of America today. Uh, we are the most abused internationally by the media, by the press, by anti-Semitism globally, uh, and it has to stop. And uh, I hope I have helped to arm you with arguments to help stop it. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, there, there is hate. There is very real hate out there. And it is disturbing and it's upsetting. And, uh, you know, we, it, we can change hearts and minds one at a time, each of us. Okay. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, I hope that uh, wherever you are, you know, listening, that you have not encountered especially hateful uh, comments. I hope that you have not encountered violence. My God, uh, they're beating Jews in the streets in the United States of America. I, I can't even believe I'm saying those words. I, I would never have thought in a million years growing up that I would ever say such things. Uh, to say that uh, Jews are the most persecuted people in the United States, that, that's a horrible thought. And nobody should be persecuted, but that my people are the people being persecuted. This is, this is horrific. So anyway, uh, be strong. Uh, you know, keep, keep up the cause. Uh, God is with us. Uh, Hashem will protect us and uh, keep us in the way that we go. And we will, uh, you know, we will persist and uh, continue to argue against them. As always, your prayers and blessings for Israel are appreciated and your support. And uh, I personally appreciate it a great deal, everyone who, uh, who listens and who stands with us. It is an act of righteousness uh, to be on the side with the good guys. Uh, as always, please visit the Facebook page, Inside Israel News, on Facebook, I, so you can keep updated with uh, news as events unfold, and uh, also find the articles I've shared about uh, anti-Semitism and, and such. And of course, you won't miss a podcast episode there. Uh, the podcast is also available on Apple, Spotify, and Podbean, and so many other podcast services, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. 
Uh, and uh, as always, uh, politicalvanguard.com. Uh, Inside Israel News has a section there where you can find all of the, uh, and find and listen through your browser if you like, uh, all of the episodes uh, that you're looking for on that website. So uh, with that, I will say, Lahitrot, goodbye. <laughs> המשחטות הישנות יגעינו תפוחי זהב כל זה אינו משל ולא חלום זה נכון כעול בצהריים